Why don't you pray with me and uh, we'll, we'll hook in. Jesus, uh, thanks for today. Thanks that uh, you've revealed yourself to us and we can know about you, we can learn about you and your Holy Spirit's come to help our hearts to be soft so that we abide in you and become part of you. So uh, I just pray for um, people listening today, Lord. I pray that their hearts would be soft, that their hearts would be good soil for your word. And I pray for myself that uh, you would do uh, 1 Peter 4, uh, that I would speak uh, your words and that they would be very useful words for uh, for you, Holy Spirit, to uh, do whatever you want to do. Amen. All right, so here's the deal. We've been doing some speaking the truth in love. All right, so uh, two weeks ago I did a uh, a pretty in-your-face kind of message about uh, speaking the truth in love and the need for rebuke and challenge. And then last week was kind of the tactical pastoral way about how to bring that about. Um, the obvious uh, point that you get to is, uh, okay, so someone's spoken the truth to you and they got it right and you see it, what do you do? Well, you repent. That's what you do. That's a word that gets thrown around in Christian circles a fair bit, but often probably isn't as defined as it could be. So today is, how do you and I need to repent? Interesting. Now, repentance is not a negative, heavy, depressive thing, all right? Which is why I've actually chosen, I'll probably never talk about backgrounds to my PowerPoint slides, but that's why I've chosen the one that I've chosen, because this is what repentance is. Repentance is actually new life. Repentance is a turning away from the things that have deceived you and have brought about death to you, and are turning to things that actually bring about life for you. What's fascinating about this is I, uh, I've been collecting newspaper articles and uh, media clips for quite a while now, probably about seven or eight years, and until about the last 18 months or so, two years, I have not heard anything in the press uh, about repentance or repent. But there's been some stuff, and I'm going to show you this stuff that's been in the press, about uh, repentance. Because normally you'd associate repentance as... A, with being a religious terminology, uh, a religious idea. Well, it's in the press. Here we go. Here's the first one. This was um, in the Courier-Mail this year in September, actually. Uh, look at the headline. The state's criminals repent and repeat. All right? The, uh, the actual first paragraph there is almost two-thirds of male prisoners and half of female prisoners are repeat offenders, prompting concerns of inadequate rehabilitation programs. By their own admission in the headline, the inadequacy is actually in the repentance of the prisoners, mostly. Fair enough? Because if they repented properly, they would repeat less, uh, if at all. Check this one out. I've got a, this one will take about two or three minutes, so we're all probably quite familiar with the News of the World scandal that broke uh, earlier this year uh, with uh, Rupert Murdoch and the phone hacking thing. Fascinating clip on uh, the ABC News. Check this one out. Rupert Murdoch's lost another high-profile executive from his media empire. The latest to resign is lawyer Lieutenant Les Hinton, chairman of News International during the time of the phone hacking. It was also a very humbling day for the media mogul. The father of six made a personal apology to the family of a murdered schoolgirl for the hurt his newspaper caused by hacking into the 13-year-old's phone after she went missing. Europe correspondent Emma Alparici reports from London. The parents and sister of murdered schoolgirl Millie Dowler have been given an audience with the three most powerful men in Britain, the Prime Minister, the opposition leader and finally the man they hold ultimately responsible for hacking into their daughter's phone after she was kidnapped. 
But I just said that the founder of the company, I was appalled to find out what had happened. And of course, and I apologise, and I have nothing further to say. Rupert Murdoch bought advertising space in all British daily newspapers, not only his own, stating that the company regretted not acting faster. The Dowlers still intend to pursue their legal action against the News of the World, but they welcomed the personal apology from the boss. You apologise many times. I don't think somebody could have held their hands in their head in their hands so many times to say that they were sorry. He said the word sorry, that this should not have happened, that this was not the standard, this was not the standard set by his father, a respected journalist, not the standard set for by his mother. While the media tycoon repented, another of his top executives resigned. Les Hinton worked with Rupert Murdoch for more than 50 years. He was... He- Might even leave it there. Isn't that interesting? While the media mogul repented. When I was watching it, I thought, that's weird. And I'm not sure I've ever heard that in a newspaper. Sorry, in a a news um, clip that someone's actually repented. Well, let me transition now uh, into uh, Ephesians 4 because we've been looking at Ephesians 4 in the project over the last probably four or five weeks uh, and and about how Paul in Ephesians 4 talks about what the Christian community should look like. What are uh, the uh, unique things about the Christian community and the Christian family? What are the things that they should do? Strangely enough, in... uh, or maybe not strangely enough, in Ephesians 4, 17 to 24, uh, we see this, and I'll just read through this. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you've learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus is a key phrase, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This language at the end of this section of scripture is very much repentance language. All right, Repentance ultimately means... If I'm facing, if my, it, let's say my sin was personified over here, and Paul kind of does, does this here where he talks about uh, deceitful desires in uh, verse 22 there. Some of the commentators I looked at said that Paul's almost personifying um, these deceitful desires in the sin. All right. So let's say I'm face to face with my sin. Repentance is I'm actually going to turn around and I'm going to walk away from it. Now Paul's language here is, uh, is like a garment. Uh, I've put on dodgy stuff, so I'm going to take it off and I'm going to put on Christ. That's what he's saying, I'm going to repent. I wonder what you think about repentance. That would be interesting if we had a discussion, if we had time to have a discussion. What do you think repentance is? Is repentance a a one-off thing? Is it something you do when you become a Christian? Is it something you do once a day? Is it a ritual? Uh, at night time, you're lying in bed, a friend of mine lies in bed, and he said he makes sure that he says sorry and repents from the stuff that he's done during the day. Is it a depressive thing? Do you think that you have to cry until your eyeballs are red and someone wants to exercise a demon out of you, all right? Because you've just been crying so hard, all right? And you're just depressed all the time, okay? Because this is an interesting thing, because uh, probably all of us, and for me, most of my life, I had this idea... 
that repentance is this thing that is just a really heavy thing. It's a really dark thing, and I've just got to be really sad, you know. So we're buying out lemons and onions from the shops because there's some sins we're not that sad about, and then we're just squeezing them in our eyes, right, so we can get a bit of a tear on, all right, and start to feel really, or at least look like we're sad. Is that what repentance is? Or is it, or do you think it's something else? So we've probably got a ton of ideas about what repentance is. It's an interesting contrast if you actually look at what the church says repentance is and what you look at, and if you look at what the world says repentance is. One of, uh, if you ever get into reading some of Martin Luther's stuff, Martin Luther is a dead set firebrand, alright? And Martin Luther started off in the Catholic Church and it ended up that he kind of got booted out of it. Um, and he did say some pretty rude stuff, which we're not going to go into here, but he said some really good stuff too. At one point in time, he wrote this uh, article called The 95 Theses, and he went and he actually literally nailed these 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door, which is a Catholic church door, which generally speaking is a confrontational act, in case you didn't know. Like as soon as you're nailing something to a door and it's different to what people inside the door are saying, you're in trouble. This is the number one comment in his 95 Theses. This is what Luther says. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of penitence or repentance. Now this is interesting. Luther's saying you need to repent and I need to repent continuously. And he actually says that that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying you just need to be in a continuous state of repentance. Alright? Now if your idea of repentance is that it's very, very sad, you're going to have a terrible life. All right? Now, sometimes it's very sad, but if that's the ultimate thing that repentance is, it's going to be difficult for you. Lord Byron, the poet, said this, the weak alone repent. Not a Christian guy. All right? So what you've got is you've got this bit of a, you've got a bit of a setup going on there where the, the Christian guy, Luther, is saying, you just seem to do it all the time. And Lord Byron, the poet, saying, no, don't do it all the time. That just shows that you're weak. You need to, strong people don't repent. Which brings us to this interesting divide between the secular view of repentance and the biblical view of repentance. Let's have a look at the secular view of uh, repentance. The secular view of repentance is that uh, it's very, it's a, it's a sign of weakness. It's, uh, it's actually an experience of disempowerment. All right? That you're actually not powerful anymore. And the fact that you're giving in, the fact that Tiger Woods has to stand up behind a lectern and uh, tell everyone the bad deeds that he's done and say that he's sorry, in a worldly sense, is actually a show of weakness, not a sign of strength at all. It's a, uh, a sign of an experience of disempowerment. And actually, the, the worldly view of repentance is it's just an aberration. It's a random thing that happens every now and then, and you just want to push it to the side as much as you can. Interesting thing is, though, that as we look at the biblical understanding of repentance, uh, the biblical understanding of repentance is actually that repentance is a sign of strength. How is it a sign of strength? Do you know how full of joy, full of love, how strong spiritually and emotionally you need to be to repent at the drop of a hat? You have to be really strong, don't you? And this is one of the things, I'm not going to get into too much today, but uh, one of the things that happens between people and in churches is people criticise each other. Do you know how strong you need to be when someone criticises you and you say you could well be right? Yeah, you actually have to be pretty strong. That actually isn't a sign of weakness. That's actually a sign of strength. 
Now, the secular view is an ex- it's an experience of disempowerment. No, no, no. The Christian view is that it's actually liberation. It's actually liberation. You know, if you have to look like you're strong all the time, that's going to take a lot of work, isn't it? It just is. Because you're going to be weak sometimes, and when you're weak, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to work really, 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 really hard to paper mache over the top of your weaknesses so that people don't see it. And repentance is when you say, I am weak. I have made a mistake, and that actually brings about liberation. You don't have to defend yourself anymore to anyone. You see that? And that's the weird thing. Our kind of our pride kind of gets in there and kind of messes with us, and we end up in this place where we're just working really hard to maintain this high view of ourselves that we think the other person has. You could actually be liberated from that because that's actually very, very tiring. And the biblical view, as Luther says, is that repentance should be happening continuously. There's this, uh, Dad knows this one uh, really well, but we used to, uh, in some of the churches that Dad's run, he's used this uh, curriculum, and part of the curriculum is uh, this analogy. I was almost going to show it today, but I didn't. Uh, but I'll, I'll tell you about it. It's this analogy of spiritual breathing. All right? Now, when you physically breathe, what do you breathe in predominantly? Oxygen. All right? Oxygen, what gives you life when you breathe out? You breathe what out? Carbon dioxide. So I think part of what Luther would be saying, and I think biblically the idea of continuous repentance, is that when we do something wrong, and when we disobey God, when we worship something else instead of God, we breathe out spiritually the carbon dioxide, All right, because if we breathe carbon dioxide all the time, what happens to us? We die. All right? So the whole idea here is spiritual breathing is when I've done something wrong, I breathe out the sin, I repent, and then I breathe in the Holy Spirit and the purification that he actually brings in my life, and that brings life to me. And this whole notion that uh, physical breathing happens all the time and that's what keeps us alive, I think uh, it would be fair to say continuous biblical repentance is when you breathe out sin, and say to God, I'm sorry, I repent, come in, fill me and bring life to my body again. And I breathe in. Spiritual, spirit, physical analogy for a uh, spiritual truth. Anyway, interesting thing about this distinction between the secular view and the biblical view is there's a direct scripture that actually talks about this. Very clear scripture. It's in 2 Corinthians 7.10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, this is interesting. What's the distinction between worldly grief and godly grief? Seems like it's pretty important to know what the distinction is, otherwise you might get it wrong. Fair enough? So I thought the best thing to do, given that we talked about him last week, was uh, later on today we'll talk about David in Psalm 51, which is why we've uh, read it out. But let me cover a couple of things, a couple of mysteries about repentance. Most of you would know the story uh, of the prodigal son that you find in uh, in the Gospel of Luke. And the story about the prodigal son is the son doesn't want to live with his dad anymore. He wants to have his inheritance. He goes away and he wastes a whole lot on wild living, runs out of money, ends up looking after pigs, which would be an, an anathema for a Jew to do, looking after pigs and he actually goes down to the lower level and literally starts eating some of the pig food. And then you have this scripture here. 
But when he came to himself, the mystery about repentance is uh, repentance tends to come upon you. It's something that happens to you probably more than something that you do. Whoever decides to wake up in the morning? You? You don't. Who decides to come to himself or to come to herself? Who decides that they're not seeing things the way they need to see them? See, this is the weird thing. I mean, we've been doing the whole speaking the truth in love and someone might come along and then all of a sudden you see what they're talking about. Now, you haven't decided to see what they're talking about. It's come to you. Do you decide you'll come out of a trance? If you're in a trance, do you just decide that you'll come out of delirium? Absolutely not. See, the problems that are causing the most problems for you and the people around you are, by definition, the ones that you can't see. That's why they are the worst. So this is a weird thing because we can, uh, you can sit there and I would sit there too and I'd, I'm standing here and I'm thinking, yeah, I think I've got things under control. But probably the issues that are the bigger issues in my life and the issues for people around me are actually the ones that I don't see. And repentance is when all of a sudden I see it, which is why we need to speak the truth in love to each other. I see it. And then all of a sudden it's like waking up in the morning. Didn't decide to wake up, didn't decide to see it, it came to me. And the interesting thing about uh, Luke 15 is, uh, and there's been a lot of work done on uh, Luke 15 and the parable of the prodigal son, and there's been a lot of work done, I should say, on the father and how the father responds and the father's love. You know what's interesting about it? If he doesn't come to himself, there's no father's love. Doesn't happen. Interesting. And here's a troubling verse in 2 Timothy 2 verse 21, a bit of mystery in this one too. Paul says to Timothy, I think he's praying for his opponents, he says, I pray for them that God may perhaps grant them repentance. There's a sense that repentance is actually a gift. See, that's why people who say, I'm just going to live my life for the next 70 years and I'm going to repent just before I die, they don't get it, they don't understand it because true repentance is actually a gift. Which is why whenever, this is my encouragement to you, whenever you get to a place of tenderness where you feel like God's bring, bringing some really life-giving conviction upon you for some stuff that you've done, you just don't want to muck around with that. You actually want to activate that and you actually want to respond really well to it. Don't, don't miss it because you could miss it for a while. And this is not a threat or a, or a warning really, it's an encouragement. Don't miss it. When God actually does some work in your heart and you start to see things you haven't seen, Grab them with both hands and just say guilty, Your Honour, to whoever you need to say guilty to and appeal for God to come in and actually start to do some work in your life. See, when we do the wrong thing, it actually sets up stress points in the fabric of reality that lead to breakdowns uh, around us until you realise the problem. You just go, what have I been doing? How could I have thought that? So take it. When you have those moments, when you actually see with clarity, don't muck around with them. It's a big time encouragement. Don't muck around. And it'd be interesting. I'm not going to have a show of hands, but it'd be interesting to have a show of hands and just say, who here has got a sense that there's some stuff that God's just wanting to bring and to work on in their lives? I'm sure that that's happening at the moment. And you just want to say, bring it. Not in a, I'm going to punch you in the nose kind of bring it way, right? Young dudes go, bring it. I'm going to fight you, all right? 
But you say to the Holy Spirit and you say to God, bring it, bring it in, bring it in and bring about the change and come and see me. Come and see me for who I am. Come and see me honestly and authentically on the inside and do some work in me. It's such a healthy thing. Do you see how this is why repentance is that? Repentance is not, I used to have a background for this, uh, some of this stuff, which was this guy with his head in his hands crying. But see, repentance is actually a turning. The thing is that we're just too stubborn to turn, aren't we? Sometimes, and we just don't want to concede. We should, and all the evidence is against us, but we are like a good, you know, defendant kind of solicitor or barrister who comes up with a whole bunch of reasons that aren't true as to why we're in the right place. We just gotta give in. Let the prosecution win, because the prosecution here doesn't want to send you to jail. The prosecution actually wants to bring life to you. You get that? I said, ah, it's good. So let's have a quick look at uh, at David and how David repents. Uh, some those of you who were here last week would know that David was called the man after God's own heart. Went out on his balcony, saw a uh, fine young filly having a bath. All right, it'll be a fine young woman having a bath. Thinks that would be cool to have her in my house with the same clothing on she's got now. All right, so she comes up and uh, he ends up getting her pregnant. Okay. So what does he do? Well, he just repents. No, he doesn't. All right, He goes into this whole mode where he's going, I just need to defend myself and I need to protect myself. So the first thing that I need to do is I need to get her husband home. And uh, and that way, he'll he, he's out on the battlefront. He hasn't seen his wife for a while. He'll, uh, he'll sleep in the same bed with his wife and hopefully some other things will happen while they're in the same bed. And, uh, and basically what's going to happen out of all of this is uh, they'll just think, that it was him that got her pregnant. So he brings her husband home. He's a very noble man. He says, I'm not going to sleep in the same bed as my wife and my brothers on the uh, on the front are, are fighting a war. So he sleeps on the doorstep. All right? So David at this point repents. No, he doesn't. All right? So what he thinks is the next thing I need to do is I need to get him drunk. All right? So he gets him up for a party because he thinks if I get him drunk, he'll go home and then he'll sleep with his wife and do all those other things that married people do. So well, he gets the guy drunk, but he decides he's, this guy is so noble, even when he's drunk, he's not going to go home and sleep in his wife's bed or in the bed with his wife. So what does David do? Well, he repents, doesn't he? Well, no, he doesn't repent. He thinks, I need to kill him. <laughs> All right? This is good. We're, we're really going somewhere. So he sends uh, Uriah back to the front, and he sends a message with Uriah, uh, basically saying uh, to the general, I'm pretty sure this one would have been sealed, all right? We're often at school here, students get letters from the principal and they hold them up to the sun to try and work out what's in it. Uh, it who knows? That would have been interesting if he knew what was in this letter, but I'm pretty sure he wouldn't have because he probably wouldn't have made it back to the front. But anyway, because the letter said, put him in the fiercest part of the battle and when uh, you give the command, tell the rest of you guys to pull back so that he gets whacked, all right? Which is what happens, all right? That is exactly what happens. Your eye gets killed, Um Nathan comes along, the prophet, and tells his story, which we looked at last week, about speaking the truth in love. You can get that uh, online if you want to have a listen to that one. But Nathan comes and shows David that he's done the wrong thing. And David repents. And you get Psalm 51, which is a song of repentance of David to God. You can check out what I've just told you. Uh, it's in 2 Samuel 11, 1-5 and verse 27. 
and uh, the repentance is in Psalm 51. So here we go. So what does David do? The first thing that David does in Psalm 51 is he actually turns to God. So let me ask you this question. Whenever we feel guilty, we all turn to something. So what do you turn to? Do you turn to God? Do you turn to your own sense of self-justification? Do you turn to the fridge? All right. Do you turn to uh, Grand Central? I pity you if you do, especially on a Thursday night because you could get stabbed. It's pretty brutal down there. All right. Where do you turn? Do you turn to uh, some people, don't they? I mean, I'm not meaning to be offensive here today, but some people go around and they try to form a posse, don't they? It's just like they find a group of supporters. They go, and, they go out and try to find band groupies for themselves, all right, to, uh, to tell them that they actually didn't do as badly as what they did do. You get what I'm saying? There's no one here like that, but we all know people like that who uh, go and form a posse. So what do you turn to when you've done the wrong thing? Yeah, I'm sure that you've at times turned to God when you've done the wrong thing. But it's interesting. We all go to something to save us when we're in a place of, of grief and guilt. And uh, the real tragedy from my point of view with the training that I've done in counselling is uh, to hear secular people basically just trash, trash talk guilt. I think guilt's a really, really good thing. It's just this mechanism that God's put inside of us that when we do something wrong, we feel bad. And often people go, I just want to stop feeling bad. Well, you, ba- you feel bad because you are bad. So the only way that you can actually get help with that is actually get help with what's bad. And the beauty of that is we've got a message for that, haven't we? We've got a message for people who feel bad about the things that they've done. Amen? Amen? We do. Yeah, we've got a message for them. So we go out and we tell them. You know, you feel guilty. Well, Jesus came to take away guilt. So stop turning to your car, stop turning to the shop, stop turning to chocolate, your fridge, uh, your wife or your husband, stop turning to your posse and all your groupies. Turn to Christ. It's free. <laughs> it's weird, isn't it? We have the weirdest message because it's the best message and it's free and it's almost like we're scared to tell it and other people don't want it. I'll work that one in. It's like having a million-dollar check and you're walking around and people are going, Nah, I'll be right, eh? I'm getting seven fifty an hour. <laughs> Good on you. You might be a manager at Macca's one day and you can put the big gherkins on instead of the small ones. All right? <laughs> and we say, no, we don't want it. Well, what does David do? Have a look at this. Verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your... How much mercy? Abundant. What about this? Oh, this is a message. See, this is a missional message, isn't it? We go out and we say to people, God's not this legalistic, he wants to whack you kind of wrathful guy. He will be one day, but right now he has got abundant mercy. He doesn't just want to pardon you and pardon everyone in the world from their sin. He wants to abundantly pardon people. That's good. You know, so the neighbour's going, Oh, I don't want to go to church because you guys just, you know, manipulate people and uh, twist your arms and get you to give money and get you to serve in the church. No, we actually want you to come to church because we want you to hear that Jesus loves you and he wants to abundantly pardon everything that you've done. 
So how many times do you actually see in verse 1, David actually turns to God? Three, doesn't he? In one verse, three times. Here he's done something terrible and he's not going to self-medicate and find something else to do. He's going to turn to God and he's determined to because he knows that God has mercy and his love is steadfast. It's like a Lincoln, whatever those, barnacle on a rock. It is steadfast. He knows it's not going to move. All right? He's got mercy, he's got steadfast love and he's got abundant mercy. So I'm going to God which makes it really, really stupid when you and I turn to other things to get saved from our guilt and the bad stuff that we've done. Why wouldn't you go to Christ? Stupid humans sometimes, aren't we? We. Second thing he does, he turns to God, he prays for cleansing. Check this out. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You know, sometimes those of you who have had kids know that sometimes kids just get so messy, you don't even want them coming in the house. Like literally the bathroom is where the mess gets taken off, isn't it? But sometimes you don't just go, no, I'm not even letting you in the bathroom. You are so dirty. So what do you do? Well, you get the pressure sprayer out. Oh, you probably don't get the pressure sprayer out, but you get the hose out, don't you? Just go stand about 10 feet away, and I'm going to turn this sucker on and we're going to just hose you down, and then you might be good enough for the bathroom. And isn't isn't what David's saying here, he's saying, I am really, really dirty, but I know a God, and I know someone who can clean me. So he turns to him. And this is what I would encourage all of you to do, is when you when you feel guilt, and when you've done something wrong, don't let it kill you. Don't let it get you depressed over a long period of time. Turn to God and turn to God with passion and with some fire and then say, God, come and clean me. There's another verse there in verse 7 of uh, 51 where David says, uh, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. That's interesting. We're all kind of going, that'll be cool. Yeah, let's all go home and get some hyssop. You know, that's what we need. All right, and maybe you can beat yourself for a little while with that before you realise you can just turn to God and get grace and then you just, I don't know, I don't know what you do with you put shower gel on the hyssop and wash it, I don't know. But here's the thing, if you go back to Leviticus 14 in verse 51 and 52, it gives specific instructions about how to cleanse a house that has had leprosy. Watch this. And you shall take the cedar wood and the hyssop and the scarlet yarn, yarn along with the live bird and dip them in the blood of the bird that was killed and in the fresh water and sprinkle the house seven times. What's David saying? He's saying, God, as uh, you told us to cleanse a leprous house, come and cleanse me and make me clean. Number three, David actually confesses the seriousness of his sin to God. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Have you ever had that? You've done something wrong and you're just going, I can't get this thing out, out of my face. You know, It's almost like you know, kids play that. Kids are classics, aren't they? I think if I hide my head, no one will be able to see me. So they just stick their head behind the door and sometimes they just put their hands up like this and they're kind of looking at you like this through this. And sometimes, isn't it, it's like the stuff that we get wrong when it gets really heavy upon you. 
it becomes this thing that's in your face and it's just, that's all you can see and you can kind of see a little crack maybe out, but mostly that's all you see. And this is hope for you because this is David. He's going, this, this is the only thing I see. And then in verse 4 he says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. See, David doesn't come out, doesn't start rolling out the excuses. I mean, some of us have got a list of maybe five, seven, nine typical excuses that we use when we do something wrong. Because I do. And I think maybe there's at least one or two of you that have that as well. Now, it's not written down somewhere because that would be weird if someone found it in your top drawer. You're just going, well, that's weird. All right? But it is, right? You just go, oh, man, I, well, I didn't really know what was happening. There's number one. All right? No, no, it was their fault. Number two, my dad didn't hug me when I was a kid. That's number three. And what we do, and some of those things may be legitimate, uh, contextual things, but none of them are actually excuses. This is the big uh, question that I asked in my counselling training when I was at TAFE. I said to my teacher, I said, can you please explain to me the difference between an excuse and an explanation? All right, And any good counsellor actually knows, and this is what she said, any good counsellor actually knows that someone's context is not an excuse, it's just an explanation. Because as soon as someone's got an excuse, it, it becomes a reason why they don't need to change, why they don't need to move forward. It doesn't mean that people haven't been through hard things, but uh, David here, he's not saying, look, she didn't have any clothes on and she shouldn't have been having a bath on the roof. Is that a fair call? It is a fair call. I reckon it is. All right? Very fair call. But he's not even rolling that one out. All right? He's saying, look, I've done the wrong thing. I've done bad. I'm not even giving any excuses. It's serious. This doesn't mean Bathsheba and Uriah and the baby weren't hurt. It means that what makes sin to be sin is that it is against God. Hurting man is bad. It is horribly bad. But that's not the horror of sin. Sin is an attack on God. See, every single life of someone who lives on the planet and has lived on the planet actually belongs to God. That's who it belongs to. So when God says don't murder, he's saying don't steal my stuff. They kill someone because they belong to me. Which is why it's not wrong when God actually decides that someone's time is up. Because he owns it. He owns the life. He owns your life. He owns my life. But ultimately for David, what this means is that even though he murdered Uriah, and obviously that had a massive ricochet effect through the family, ultimately the issue was that it was between him and God. And I said this last week, and I'll throw it out again, wouldn't this be a weird song to sing in the temple if you're Uriah's family? Wouldn't you have conflicting emotions in the temple when you're singing this one? You get to the bit that says, uh, it's against you and you only have I sinned. You'd be thinking... What the heck happened to my uncle? Pretty sure that David killed him. All right. What happened to my, my husband? That's Bathsheba. What happened to my son? What happened to my grandson? David killed him. But yet the psalm is true in stating that the main offence by David wasn't actually against someone else, but it was against God. Number four. Oh, actually, before we get to number four, a couple more scriptures. Psalm 51.4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David is at pains in his repentance to say, God is pure and I'm evil. I need help. 
He hasn't done anything wrong. You see, God is justified. God is blameless. If God cast David into hell for what he'd done wrong, God will be innocent. That's what David's saying. You will be innocent. I'm guilty. See, this is actually really radical God-centered repentance. There's no excuses. There's no blame shifting. This is actually the way that saved people think and feel. They say, when they've done the wrong thing, they say, you would be just to cast me aside and to damn me. That's how saved people think. But then they turn to God and they say, but the fact that you haven't done that is sheer mercy. It's blood-bought mercy. It's the incredible kindness of God. So David here is not ignoring how serious his sin is. He's not blaming God. He's not making excuses. He's vindicating God's righteousness and he's saying, you're right, I'm wrong. And then he's going, but please help me because I know you want to and I know your mercy is abundant. And then Psalm 51 verse 5, David makes this comment. He says, his real problem is that he's got a mechanism going on inside of him that's busted. There's a busted mechanism in there. The one that's meant to turn to God doesn't turn to God. He's saying that from the start, something was broken inside of him. And he's saying to God, I don't want it to be broken anymore. I want you to restore me. I want you to heal that. I want you to fix that brokenness inside of me that keeps messing things up. And then number four, he pleads for renewal. You see this uh, in verse 11 there. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. So the fourth step that David follows in godly repentance is to say, God, please come and change me. Come and help me. Don't throw me away. He knows. He knows. And you know what? Every single time you do something wrong, that is an opportunity for God to cast you away from himself. Isn't it? He doesn't do that. He doesn't want to do that. That's why Christ came. Christ came so that you wouldn't be cast away from him. And David knows that. He knows on the inside, he goes, man, God could just kick me out. But you know what? He won't because he doesn't want that to happen. And so David's saying, yeah, do what what you promise. Follow in line with your steadfast love, your abundant mercy. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Restore stability to my heart. Let me be done with the destabilization that the disobedience has created. Just restore stability. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. All right, we're going to get practical. I'm just going to sum up now and we're done. Teaching godly repentance. The way that repentance works is that we work out there's a problem because it hurts. Agreed? It just hurts. We've done something wrong, something starts to break up and it hurts. But you know what happens is that pain can actually lead to greater self-centeredness rather than less. Let me give you an example of this. Um, probably within about six months of us moving in across the road, uh, I walked in uh, pretty much... I don't know, some of you would know this with kids. Whenever there's a bit of activity and it looks like kids are having fun, it becomes this neighbourhood magnet and, and j- kids just come from everywhere, like sometimes even ones we haven't seen before. They're just going, who are you? I don't know. All right, they just come. It's just like, hey, there's four boys up the end of the street. They look like they're having fun. Let's go and join them. All right, so everyone comes up and that's cool. We love it, right? But the interesting thing is after um, 
one afternoon that this had happened, about six months in, I, uh, I went into um, uh, Geordie's room and uh, Geordie uh, said to me, he goes, oh, Daddy, I just gave one of our next-door neighbours a Bible. I said, oh, okay, that's really cool. I just kind of random. He goes, I told him he needed to go and read it and start at Genesis chapter 1. <laughs> right? <laughs> Not sure about that one, but he goes, he needs to go and read it. I told him that if you didn't go and read it and learn to love Jesus, he'll go to hell. All right? And on one hand, I'm going, okay, it was pretty gutsy. All right, he's probably six at the time. But I thought, let's sit down and have a bit of a yarn about it. So we sat down and I said to him, I said, right, mate. I said, what if your friend down the road only becomes a Christian and starts loving Jesus because he doesn't want to go to hell? I said, who does he really love? And he sat there and he thought, and he goes, oh, he's only really going to be loving himself. Good answer? Good answer. All right? He is only going to be loving himself. I said, okay. I said, you tell me. I said, if you want him to love Jesus, how do you need to, what do you need to do to help him to love Jesus? And you know what he said? He said, well, you just need to tell him about how good Jesus is. Because he might be scared of going to hell and come to Christ, but that's probably not going to produce godly repentance. It'll produce self-preservation repentance, won't it? Even though it is a true statement. And you actually uh, see a little bit of this in Wayne Carey. If you remember right, Wayne Carey had his best mate and thought a cool thing would be to have an affair with his best mate, which is committing adultery. It's normally just so that you know you don't do to anyone, let alone your best mate. Here's a newspaper article from uh, the Courier-Mail on the 23rd of uh, October 2009. I'll just read the first paragraph in a bit. All the while I was praying non-stop, he says now, because he got into drugs and he ended up in a whole bunch of problems. Praying to God like I used to when I was in trouble as a kid and I knew Dad was on his way home. In that cell, I wanted to become a born-again Christian. I thought I'd found God and I said to him, if you get me out of here, I'll be a better person. I promise I'll repent my sins and give up my bad ways. What's the very first phrase in the next paragraph? Carrie didn't find God. Because what you actually see there, I think, is you actually see worldly repentance where he's sorry for what he did because it's causing him pain and he's just trying to preserve himself rather than really turning to God. God became this little spanner or tool that he could use to fix the machine. And God won't let himself be used as a little tool to fix a machine. He actually wants to be everything. Let me tell you uh, about how legalists repent. A legalist is uh, typically someone who's self-righteous, makes lots of rules up that aren't in the Bible. Um, how does a legalist repent? The truth is that there's a, a, a legalist in a lot of Christians. There's certainly a legalist in me. There's, there's a big legalist in me. It's kind of the self-righteous side to me where I put all these rules out and I'm watching what other people are doing and I'm thinking, that's not good enough. You need to be better than that. Not working on the grace of God and the mercy of God, but working on rules all the time. How does a legalist repent? Well, they actually think that God is going to get me. I reckon a lot of my life I've thought that uh, you need to repent because God's going to get you. Which is kind of true, but it doesn't actually bring about the heart change that God wants to bring about. They actually uh, hate repenting legalists because what makes them strong is that they've got a good record. And they've, had, they've got lots of rules and they've worked out how to live a nice, clean, neat life and if they actually blew it, 
uh, and repented, that would actually separate them from their power, and their power is actually getting everything right. And if we actually became a church, and I pray by God's grace we don't, but if we actually became a church where we were full of legalists, you wouldn't have sinners coming. They just wouldn't come because they'd come in and they'd feel like people are putting rules on them. They'd feel like they couldn't be good enough. They couldn't, they couldn't match. They couldn't meet the standard. A legalist beats themselves up. That's an interesting thing that happens with repentance sometimes, isn't it? Instead of turning to God, we, uh, we beat ourselves up. And it's almost like our own way of atoning for our sin. We kind of grab some figurative sticks and we start hitting ourselves. I can't believe that you did that. I can't believe you're so stupid. What's everyone thinking now? They're all looking at me right now. And I'm just an idiot. And I shouldn't have done it. And I deserve to be punished. I deserve to get it. And what do we do? We just keep beating ourselves and beating ourselves and beating ourselves until we feel like we've punished ourselves enough. And we've earned some esteem in other people's eyes because we think they're looking at us and they're saying, oh, he really punished himself for that. Or she really punished herself for that. Oh, they must be a really good person. And we're still in this legalist treadmill where we just can't get off it. It's just that the beating yourself actually becomes a mechanism we use to feel good about ourselves. Why do some people keep saying they are sorry? You've probably met some people like that. I'm not saying all of them are like this, but some of them keep saying sorry because they actually don't really know when they've beaten themselves up enough. Is once enough to say sorry and to repent? I think so. But it's like the person who keeps going, and I don't know whether it's you, it's certainly me. I mean, I'm, you know, my average is probably four or five, I think. <laughs> Sorry. And there's a sense in that, that you're not actually grabbing hold of the grace of God. But you know what? The gospel repentance, the good news about Christ is the more you repent, the better you get. This is the good news for all of us, all right? And this is why you should do it all the time. Repent all the time. Whenever you do something wrong, repent. Because that's the mechanism that God's given to you to actually get better. You actually get better the more that you repent. All right. Man. Just wanna, this is a word for the men. All right. And some of the women will just kind of go, oh, it's about time someone said this. Uh, and I'm going to say it. All right. And, and I need to grow in it too. Gentlemen, it is our job to lead in repentance. Alright? It's our job. It is our job to lead in repentance. What is the deal with dudes who wait for their wife or their girlfriend to say sorry before they'll say sorry? What's with that? You see, it is the job of every man to teach repentance and to lead in repentance. Which means, probably, most of the time, in marital conflict and conflict in relationships, the dude should be the one repenting first. I mean, John Piper, I, I watched this really impacting clip by John Piper quite some time ago, and he said he tries to make it a discipline in his life whenever, it, it doesn't even matter, he said it doesn't even matter whether it's his fault or not. He said he is going to be the first one in a fight or a conflict in his relationship to say sorry. And let's take this even further, gentlemen. If you've got children of any age, it is your job to teach your children repentance by the way that you repent publicly in front of them. 
And I'm preparing this Tuesday night, and I'll be honest with you, I used to do this a fair bit, and I was quite transparent with my kids. But it's just fallen by the wayside. And Tuesday night I'm preparing this message, and I'm thinking, stop it, it's, I've, I've forgotten. You know, and I'll tell you, the next day I got up, and uh, I was I was quite anxious. I had a number of things on, on on Wednesday, and I was quite anxious, and I was, just being honest, I was finding it really difficult to trust God. So I thought this morning what I'm going to do is I'm going to see if there's one of my boys who will pray for me this morning. All right? So I went to my first boy. I'm not even going to tell you who this is. I went to my first boy and I said, buddy, can you come here for a sec? And I sat, him, I sat down next to him and I said, listen, mate, I said, daddy's finding it really difficult to trust Jesus today and I'm, I'm pretty worried about some stuff and I don't know what it is, but I'm just finding it really hard. Can you pray for me? And he stood there and he goes, um... Uh, and he goes, oh, no, I don't think so, Daddy. <laughs> All right? I'm going, that's cool. That's why I have more than one son. All right? <laughs> so we'll go and, I'll go and find another one, right? So I went and I found another one. I said, buddy, can you come over here? I just need to talk to you for a sec. All right? And literally, it was the weirdest thing because he's actually lying on the top shelf of his built-in wardrobe, right? <laughs> so it's not even sit on a bed next to each other. I'm just kind of looking up at him and... And uh, and I just said to him, I said, listen, buddy, I said, here's the truth, bud. I said, daddy's just finding it really difficult to trust Jesus today. And he's kind of going, why? <laughs> that kind of look. Yeah, he didn't say that, but he's kind of going, why? And and I looked up and I said, no, it's just really hard today. I said, and I just need someone to pray for me. I said, will you pray for me? He goes, yeah, I'll pray for you, daddy. And so he, he's up on the top shelf and... I said, well, you put your hand on my head. And he goes, yeah, put, I put my hand on your head. And he put his hand on my head and he prayed for me. All right? Now, I kid you not, around about 10 o'clock in the day, I, I, I just had this revelation from God about why I was anxious. And it was because I cared about my own reputation. And what it did with my son is all of a sudden, what's happening? My son's realizing that dad's not actually a higher power than him like Star Wars, right? He's not like the Force. Dad's actually... He's right next to me, maybe down the track a little bit, but he's actually struggling too. And Dad needs me to pray for him. And literally last night I sat down with him and I, I said, Buddy, I just want to tell you something. I said, God answered your prayer. And by 10 o'clock I actually worked out why I was anxious. And I repented of being obsessed with my own reputation and just focused on the Lord and my anxiety went away. He's sitting there and he's going, oh, <laughs> pretty surprised. Why, gentlemen, dads, when was the last time that you literally went to your children and apologised to your children and repented in front of them? Not just for things that you did wrong, but for the things that you should have done that you didn't do. Because that's sin too, according to James 4. I am absolutely persuaded that children need to see adults in front of them repenting in front of them appropriately. Fair enough? I mean, this is something I try to do at school with school students at the school here, is to repent. If I've done something wrong, publicly repent. Why not? I mean, that's where the life is. If you're wrong, just, yeah, I'm wrong. I mean, any, there's a few students here from the school who have been in my big studies class when I've done this, all right? There should be more of it, shouldn't there? I mean, I hope that this continues. From the leadership in the church, I mean, this is a job of Diff and Nathan and myself. If we get something wrong, 
as long as it's appropriate, we'll publicly repent. And when I say as long as it's appropriate, there's some things that happen in churches that are difficult to manage and they need to be handled sensitively. But don't think that that doesn't mean that we're not going to repent. And the really cool thing I love about having Biff and Nathan on the team is both of them, even though they're significantly younger than me, will come up and give me a good slapping when I need it. All right? And that's really good. When What are you? You're 24? 25. I'm 38, right? He's 13 years younger and he, he gives it to me all the time. And that's really good. All right? Because that's actually where the life comes. When he gives it to me and I think, he's right, all of a sudden I've got this little shoot going on here. And there's growth coming. There's good growth coming. So, gentlemen, if you're a father and you haven't repented for a while, I'm sure there's something you can repent for. You see, otherwise, all the kids ever see is dad's going, you've got to do this and this and you've got to get in the line here and here. And they never ever hear that dad's actually got issues in his own life where he has to get in line. And what that sets up is it actually sets up a, sets up a, a judgmental kind of hypocritical standard for Christianity in the home instead of a kind of a vibe in the home where son, daughter, man, my heart's messy too. And, uh, and I'm just trying to follow Jesus and, and, and just there I didn't. And it hurt you and I'm sorry. And uh, I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask Jesus to forgive me and I'm going to ask Jesus to heal you from the hurt that I've done. That's going to be a healthy house. We'll finish on this quote. I love this quote. This is uh, Stephen Sharnock. He was actually a uh, Presbyterian Puritan from... Uh, He lived between 1628 and 1680. He said this about repentance. A legalistic conviction of sin arises from a consideration of God's justice, chiefly, but an evangelical or a gospel conviction from a sense of God's goodness. A legally convinced person cries out, I have exasperated a power that is as the roaring of a lion. I have provoked one that is the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth whose word can tear up the foundation of the world. But a gospel convicted person cries out, I've incensed a goodness that is like the dropping of the dew. I've offended a God who had the deportment of a friend. You see that? One repentance is coming out of fear and the other repentance is coming out of love and relationship and being part of God's family, which is what we are. So repent all the time to your friend, to your dad, to your brother, as Hebrews says. Why don't you pray with me? God, I pray that uh, even today that um, you, you grant the gift of repentance to us today. I pray today, Lord, before the sun goes down tonight that there'd be some dads that would repent to their kids. Repent of being at work too much and not playing with their kids. Repent of losing their temper and raising their voice with their kids. Maybe, God, there'd be some fathers who would express weakness to their children and teach their children that they need help and ask their children to pray for them and help them. And, God, I pray that this would be something that would be like a reflex uh, reaction in this church, that we would uh, just repent. We'd just repent quickly. We wouldn't default to uh, self-justification and making up excuses but we turn to you. We'd be a gospel-centered church that turns to the gospel, turns to your death on the cross, Jesus, to purify us and to cleanse us.
Amen.